This message is from Grace Church, located in Frisco, a suburb of Dallas-Fort Worth. The Grace Church website is gracechurchfrisco.org. Craig Cabanis, the lead pastor, is the speaker for this message. Happy anniversary. Every year uh, on our anniversary, we uh, do some kind of outdoor church picnic thing. And as Rob mentioned, so we're looking forward to that. I hope you'll come. If you're new, it's a great time. It's very relaxed, just opportunity to to uh, meet people. You can't avoid injury, as he mentioned. It, it, it can be done. I've yet to be injured at uh, one of the picnics. Um, so we'd love, love to have you. And uh, as leaders, we've made a lot of poor decisions over the years. But could I just tell you one really good decision we made? And actually, I think I made this decision, now that I kind of think of it. <laughs> Uh, so if I could just start out, I'm sure this will be wonderful for all the guests. Uh, let me just tell you something I did right. Uh, I've done a lot of things wrong. That list is longer. But uh, when we came to our first year, we started meeting on Sunday nights, gathering on Sunday nights uh, in July of 05. And so when we came to our first, coming up on our first year, we were like, well, we should have a celebration for our one-year anniversary and do something outside. And we'll go, oh, it's July. So we are going to force this group of people and people that we don't know in the future to celebrate in 110 degrees every year for an anniversary. That is really not a good idea. So we started thinking, well, we didn't start meeting on Sunday mornings until uh, we met Sunday nights. We didn't start meeting on Sunday mornings, which is kind of like a real legit deal, real legit church. So we'll, in October, so we'll make that our anniversary. So the church will always be able to celebrate at 75 degrees. It'll be 75 degrees today and sunny. So yes, that'll be wonderful. So uh, I've preached some boring sermons, made some, given some bad counsel, made some mistakes, been stupid, sinned, been ignorant, but that was a winner. 75 degrees today. You can thank me this afternoon, uh, and, uh, and it's a celebration, so don't tell me all the bad decisions till next Sunday. I just want to celebrate today the one good decision, and most of all, God's decision to plant this church and to bring you to be a part of it. That's, that's the one glorious decision, what God is doing. Well, we are in Acts 16, and um, as we're moving through this book, we're, if you're new here, we're working our way through verse by verse, chapter by chapter through the book of Acts. And as we're doing that, what, I am, uh, what I'm realizing is that God is doing something in our church. I believe I see signs uh, that he is sort of tilling the soil in our hearts. And that's what happens when you have long-term exposure uh, hopefully with applications. When you have long-term exposure to Scripture with application, life changes the result. And uh, so a lot of the sermons sound alike because every Sunday we're in a passage of narrative where the Spirit is moving and saving people and building churches, starting churches. That's what every week. It's the history of how the church got started. So we're having this long, repeated exposure uh, to uh, to how God began the early church through the apostles and the believers that were gathered together. And as we're going through Acts, I, w- I had this thought recently. This, what is the primary difference between the church in Acts and today's evangelical church in America? Or let, we could be more narrow. Our church. Or us. Or me. What's the real difference? As I'm going through here, there are a lot of differences I think we could identify between the early church, which is in revival, and our church and us and individuals today, which are arguably not in revival, certainly not in historic revival like the book of Acts. What are the differences? And not only what are the differences, but how could we, is there anything we could do? How could we close the gap? How could we close the gap between then and now, between Acts and today. So what are the big differences? And I was thinking, well, how about miracles? It it does seem that that there are supernatural, glorious things happening in Acts. Two weeks ago, we looked at the fact that Paul is stoned for his faith. They drag him out of town, think he's dead. He stands up and walks back into town, greeting those who stoned him, uh, supposedly. I mean, maybe. So that's you know, that's just crazy. Lame men being twice we've read of lame people being called to walk. Today we will look at someone delivered from a demon. Uh, people come to church and lie about their giving and they fall over dead under the judgment of God. That may be a kind of miracle we're not looking for, but that's miraculous. So I don't see that happening, you know, very much right around us or at all, those kinds of things. So maybe there's 
Maybe there's a difference in miracles. There, there is, but we can't really contribute or do anything about that. That's God's sovereign work. There's nothing we could do to close that gap. How about conversions? What we read in the book of Acts, and the, the apostles are going out, and they're preaching the gospel, and people very far from God, culturally very separate from God, voted least likely to become a Christian or becoming Christians. Gentiles. That's what I'm talking about. So Gentiles are becoming Christians, and churches are being birthed, and it's happening through the preaching of the gospel and signs and wonders which confirm the preaching of the gospel. And through all kinds of ways, God is saving a people for himself. And at least in terms of the sheer numbers, going into a city where no one knows Jesus and people coming to meet him and churches being planted, there seems to be, at least in the sheer numbers and the weight of it, there seems to be a difference between the book of Acts and today as I look around. And while we could do something about our witness and our preaching to be sure, none of us can force anyone to be a convert. None of us, it's not in our power to convert a soul. It's not in our power to heal a body. So miracles and conversions, there are differences, but, but ultimately that's the work of God in an ultimate sense. I'm not sure we can do anything about closing that gap in a significant way. But as I look at the book of Acts, I think there is something that relates to both of these that's characteristically different from the early church and today, and that's this. Expectations. Expectations. When I read the book of Acts and I read the stories, and just imagine somewhat the stories that aren't recorded, but we know they happened, the countless nameless individuals who shared their faith, who prayed for others, who gave sacrificially, who opened up their house to strangers to reach out. All of the, the church was built on those people, not just the apostles that came into a town and preached the gospel. The church is built on nameless people who did all kinds of things for the kingdom. And as I think about that, I realize there's something about expectation. I believe that we, I, I can't speak for everybody, but I believe that I and many of us have, have a diminished amazement at the work of God. I think we have a, a waning awe over who God is and his imminent presence and what he does. I, I think we have lower expectations. I mean, many of us are content to do religious stuff, to show up at a religious service, to execute a religious meeting, and we're just content. And there's a lack of longing and hunger and prayer and desperation and expectation for God to do more. More in us, more through us, more to those around us. An expectation not to settle For this is good enough. This is satisfactory. Always content in God. Always content in who He is. Always content in the circumstances that He has ordained for us so that we're trusting Him. I'm not speaking of sinful discontent. But discontent in the sense that we want more. We want to see God move and act more like we see in the book of Acts. And I wonder if there was a little more amazement and a little more awe and a little more expectation, and a little more longing, and a little more prayer, if there wouldn't be a little more activity like we see in the book of Acts. Now, God is sovereign in doing what he does, but God has sovereignly chosen to respond in many instances to those who are hungry, those who are in faith, those who are crying out, and those who are acting boldly in response to who they know God to be. You see, I believe as we're now 16 chapters in, I believe what I'm learning about Acts is that the book of Acts is given to wow and amaze us. It is given to record the history of the church, to be sure. It's inerrant, it's truthful, it's accurate, it's historical, yes. But it's given to us not merely to say, wasn't God good back then? Well, those were the days... It's given to us to provoke us, to reveal to us the God who is reaching people, the God who does miracles, the God who regenerates lost people, the God who comes and rescues hurting people and draws them to himself, the God who plants churches and draws people together, the God who sanctifies those people so that they grow in holiness, the God who uses weak, sinful people to proclaim his truth and reach others. The book of Acts is to wow and amaze us at God. So that when we read this, 
it impacts us so that we say, Lord, here I am, send me. Would you do the same in our day? Would you do the same in my family? Would you do the same in my life? Would you do the same in our city? And so today we're going to look at we're going to look at a passage where where the uh, the apostle uh, the apostolic kind of team the the team of missionaries here go into Macedonia to Philippi you know the book of Philippians that that's written to them later but this is how the church is birthed in Philippi and we're going to look at three scenes three portraits where God intervenes and saves someone and the common thread in each of them is that God is at work. God is at work. See that. God is at work supernaturally bringing people to himself. God is at work supernaturally bringing people to himself. And so we want to see that God on display and trust him to act. So let me pray, and then we're going to read. There's three sections. I'm going to read one, comment on it, uh, teach from it, and then wrap up with some application. Let's pray. God, we thank you for all that you have done to save us, Lord, of this, our anniversary, we thank you for birthing this church and drawing us together. We thank you for what you have done, how you have held us and worked with us. Lord, thank you for your long-suffering, your patience. Thank you for your, your glorious work in our midst. And we just pray that today we would have a greater glimpse of who you are and what you, what you do. Lord, we pray that you would stir a longing, a hunger, a prayer, a faith towards you as we see what you do. In Jesus' name, amen. Here's scene one, verses 11 through 15. And here's the scene. We see God quietly opening a heart. God quietly opening a heart. Verse 11. So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace, and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days, and on the Sabbath day we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer, and we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what Paul was, was said by Paul. And after she was baptized, and her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. I mean, this is a very normal scene, isn't it? What we're reading here, it's not dramatic. It's not, whoa, I could never imagine that happening. It's a very normal scene. Paul has come with his companions uh, to Philippi, uh, which is in the district of Macedonia. They are in Macedonia because previously, in the verses right before this, which uh, Rob preached on last week, previously, in a vision, a Macedonian man appears to Paul and says, come to Macedonia. So they have this vision, and so they've come in response to a vision. God speaks the vision and says, come to this area. And you can imagine that expectations are high. Paul says, they say, where are we going next? We're going to Macedonia. Why? Because I had a vision. And a man appeared to me and said that we are to go and preach the gospel there. I would think expectations would run high to tell the good news in this area and to assume that there would be a big and eager audience. You would assume if God's specifically given direction, leave where you are and come over here, that he's got something big in store. And yet, when we see them go to Macedonia, we see something not big in store, not a big audience at all. Evidently, there's not a synagogue. Every town they go into, they go to the synagogue, and they preach the gospel to people who are already convinced about the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, and they take the Old Testament and they preach Jesus to them, and it's, it's a mess. Some believe and some don't. And those who don't believe usually get violent. So that's what happens throughout the book of Acts. So here, they don't go to a synagogue. Why? Well, there's probably not a synagogue. It took ten Jewish men in a city to form a synagogue. 
And so perhaps there aren't 10 Jewish men, or at least 10 Jewish men that want to be part of a synagogue plant, I guess you'd call it. Uh, so I, I, I guess not. And so what they do is they figure there's a place of prayer. So they go, the river is, an out, uh, is a mile outside of town. So they walk a mile outside of town, hoping to find someone who's a believer uh, in, in Yahweh, who would be praying that they could talk to about Jesus. And when they get there, it's just a women's prayer meeting. And I say just because in this culture, women uh, were largely marginalized with regard to influence. They would not have the type of influence that God would design or that would be uh, in our culture today. They would have been very marginalized, and uh, Jewish women would have been marginalized. And so they go to a women's prayer meeting, and that's why I say just. that's, That's not the ticket to influencing the city. The ticket to reaching the city is not a few ladies down at the river a mile outside of the city. That's just not on the strategic plan to take the city. But that's what happens. That's where they are. And the Lord takes this very small, weak situation, and that's the doorway into reaching a city and planting a church. A church which Paul will be very fond of, and when we read the letter to the Philippians, it's arguably his most joyous letter. But this is where it starts, at the women's prayer meeting down by the river. God delights to work through weak circumstances, weak people, weak situations, the unlikely. God loves to do that because then his glory is on display. And I've been studying about weakness. I'm about to preach uh, on weakness and the uh, uh, the theme of how God uses the weak to display his strength. And uh, we'll be talking about that in a few weeks. But anyway, that, this, that's what's happening here. This is the week to reach the city. So Paul and Silas are evidently there, Timothy and Luke. This is the traveling team. And so they start speaking to the ladies. And there's one lady in particular that responds. Her name is Lydia. She is from Thyatira. She's a businesswoman. She's a merchant. She's a seller of pur- purple goods. That sounds kind of bizarre to us. Why do we need the, why do we need the color of her clothing that she sells or her, uh, what other fabrics that she is selling, whatever she's doing? But she sells purple goods from Thyatira. Thyatira was an area that, where there is, uh, historians tell us that there were merchants who sold purple goods there, that there was a certain purple dye that was extracted from a fish. Uh, that was in that area, and so they would dye various things and garments and sell them, and they would be valuable. They would be worthwhile. I thought that was my timer. Uh, they would be worthwhile. And uh, so uh, they'd be valuable to take those and then sell them. So she had these rare goods that she sold. And if her business did anything at all, she was probably wealthy because what she sold, she sold Nordstrom. Not Wal- her products were not at Walmart. They were at Nordstrom or Neiman Marcus or someplace like that. They were high-end goods, so she's likely wealthy. We see she has a house and begins to draw people into her house. So she is a businesswoman with, uh, with some means, very likely. And so we know that about her, and that's important. I want to make that point that she was probably someone who was, uh, who was on the in as far as women in the society would go. Uh, she also is a worshiper of God, verse 14. That's a phrase that, res- uh, that describes a God-fearer, uh, someone who believed in Yahweh, the God of the, uh, of the Hebrew Bible, uh, our God as well, but who was not Jewish. So she was a Gentile who worshiped like a Jew. We could say it that way. And then as she's listening, it says that Paul speaks, and the Lord opened her heart. The Lord, verse 14, opened her heart. She's already moral. She's already religious. She's already at a prayer meeting when there's not even a synagogue in town. She's already gathering with some ladies to pray, but she doesn't know Christ. And so the Lord opens her heart, and she believes, and she is baptized. And it's not a dramatic event, but it's a supernatural event. It's a supernatural event. The ESV Study Bible, some of you may have that on your lap this morning. Uh, This is what it says about that verse. It says, the Lord opened her heart. It is the supernatural work of God, not the wisdom or persuasiveness of the preacher that ultimately draws people to Christ. 
It is not the persuasiveness of the preacher or the witness or the testimony. It is the supernatural power of God that opens a heart to see and be convicted and to be to believe. So if you're here today and you believe your story is Lydia's, God opened your heart. God opens hearts. And so she is baptized with her household. Uh, her household, that would have been presumably her believing family and servants. Uh, they are baptized as well. Um, and then she invites them to stay at her house. The mission team, these four guys at least, stay at her home. So she is, she is likely wealthy, wealthy and respectable, moral perhaps, a God-fearer, a believer in God, and yet she needs salvation. She needs Christ. Moral people need Christ. Religious people need Christ. Because none of our actions or our activities make us right with God. Going to the prayer meeting, walking a mile to the prayer meeting, doesn't make you right with God. Only faith in Christ, only the work of Jesus gives us freedom. And religious and moral people are oftentimes the least likely to see their need and need God to open their heart. That may be you today. You may be moral. You may be respectable. You may have it together. We might look at you and say, wow, that that person has it together. Their career, their life, their family, they have it together. They're, they're the uh, magazine cover. for fr- They're the Frisco poster child. They have it together. That should be, our, that, that should be in quotations, I, I think, our, uh, you know, our slogan, Frisco. We have it together because that's the way it looks. But people who have it together and aren't in crisis are a living crisis if they don't know Christ. If you, have, if you do not have new life in Christ, you are a walking crisis crisis. An absolute crisis. I don't care if you're healthy. I don't care if you're attractive. I don't care if you're wealthy. You are a walking crisis. You are poor. You are, you are destitute. You are in darkness and you are heading, heading to eternity apart from God. And so you need Christ. I need Christ. We all do it. And the Lord opens the heart of moral people to show them their need of a savior. That's the first scene. So we have Lydia. The next one is very different. Scene number two, God dramatically frees a slave. Scene number one, God quietly opens a heart. Scene number two, God dramatically frees a slave. Verse 16, as we were going to the place of prayer, so they returned. She's a Christian now, and they returned back to the place of prayer. We were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God, who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews, and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. So another Sabbath, they are returning to the place of prayer, verse 16 says, and they're met by a slave girl. Uh, who is shouting out these things to them or about them. Now, verse 18 says, uh, she kept doing this for many days. So they're evidently having this young girl show up and shout out things when they, when they show up places, when they go to preach the gospel to people, and it's happening as they're going out to this riverside location to pray on the Lord's Day. She, the verse... Um, Verse 16 says, she had a spirit of divination, um, and she was able to do fortune-telling, and so her owners made profit off her. So she's a slave, she's owned by someone else, and she has a demon. 
And the demon that is within her is a spirit of divination. So she's a medium or an oracle, it could be called. And so she, uh, she like channels, I guess we could say, this voice or this presence of the spirit to tell people things. Likely she tells people things secret that are secrets about themselves that a demon might know, or she uh, proclaims their future, tells them something about their future, and people pay for this service. People pay for this service today as well in our culture, but it it was a significant thing in their culture because if you had a problem with a relationship or a romance, you might go to a person like this and get a message. Uh, If you needed to make a decision, you might go to a person like this, a fortune teller, and get a message, a direction counsel, something like that. So that's who this gal is. Now, it seems strange that she's running around and sort of endorsing them, doesn't it? That a demon would be yelling out, these are, they, these are servants of the Most High who proclaim the way of salvation. I mean, that's technically true, isn't it? I mean, that's who they are. So, so a demon is introducing them as they go in through this inhabited slave girl. And uh, it's strange that they would do that. And Paul becomes uh, annoyed by this and casts the spirit out of her, uh, like Jesus did when he encountered demons. Um, and we, we want to ask why. why. Why is he annoyed? Why does he do this? It doesn't tell us. Passage doesn't tell us. But it could be because, you know, he didn't want the credibility of his message to rest on a, a demonized slave girl fortune teller person. He's not looking for the endorsement of mediums in the city when he's preaching the gospel. This is very confusing. He doesn't want the message of Jesus confused with the occult. And so this is why her message, though she may technically be speaking the truth, is not welcomed. As well, she speaks somewhat generically, doesn't she? She says, these men are servants of the Most High God. The Most High God is definitely a reference to the God of the Bible. Uh, we can find that terminology in the Bible. That was also a reference to Zeus. We, we studied about Zeus a couple of weeks ago. We didn't study about Zeus, but we read about worshipers of Zeus. <laughs> yeah, if you're new, like, whoa, I knew there's something weird about this church. But uh, no, we didn't study Zeus. But we, we, read, about, <laughs> we read about some, uh, some Zeus worshipers uh, there in the Bible, in the book of Acts. We read about them. So Zeus was called the Most High God for those who were part of the, who believed in mythology. It wasn't mythology to them. It was their gods, their, their, uh, their worship system. So she's saying something very generic. It could be that he doesn't want Jesus Christ, his God, confused with the pantheon of other gods. Could be that. Uh, Could be that this isn't going to go well long term. The demon might be in speaking about them positively right now, but that will not continue. The demon's up to no good. Satan's up to no good. Might say something truthful, one commentator said, he might say something truthful a hundred times to draw us in to believe so that we're duped on the hundred and first time. If this woman can gather a voice, this girl can gather a crowd endorsing them of people who believe her, then what else would she tell them that would, in fact, confuse? So you just don't want the endorsement or the support of uh, demons in ministry uh, you can mark that down. <laughs> mark, that, mark that down. Just a brilliant, brilliant insight there. But you, that's not really what you're looking for when you're preaching the good news. Uh, there, there's also the reality that he cares for this girl who is tormented, obviously. And so uh, he tells the demon, verse 19, to come out. And uh, I'm sorry, verse 18. And the demon comes out of her that very hour. And so she is freed from this oppression and now her owners have no source of income. No demon, no dollars for them. They can't, they can't, she can't do her deal without uh, the powers of darkness and, and strengthening her and animating her. And so she can't do it anymore. She, she, she has cost, they've lost their business. And so they're very upset about this. Verse 19, they drag Paul and Silas into the marketplace. Each colony like this would have had two magistrates. They bring them in before the magistrates. And without even hearing them, they just start making accusations. There's no opportunity for them to defend themselves. The accusations are they're Jewish, so they're playing on anti-Semitism in the area. That's the first thing they say. These men are Jews. 
So that's a negative, evidently, here. And they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. So they appeal to specific pride of a colony that's part of Rome. So they're Jews. That's bad. They're teaching things that we're not allowed to do. So they're, in essence, harming our culture. And so the, the magistrates have them beaten, have them stripped and beaten severely with rods, verse 22. And they inflicted many blows upon them. Then they put them in jail and said, keep them secure. And the jailer puts them in an inner prison, could have been like a basement thing, but puts them in an inner prison and fastens them in the stocks. So there's something around their feet, maybe their hands as well, uh, where they are immobilized completely and can offer no threat to the city. All this because God has freed a slave from a demon. Now, we don't want to lose her in all this. It's easy to get caught up in what happens next in the jailer, but, but here is a girl who is victimized. She is a double victim. First of all, she is a victim of a system of slavery wherein someone owns her. So she has no freedoms, no rights. She doesn't get to do what she wants to do. She is owned by whoever these owners are that have bought her and own her. So here's a woman who is, first of all, lost her freedoms. Secondly, she's ruled by a demon. So there is this demon that uh, inhabits her, and she is forced by the human owners to channel the demonic owner to make them money. She is in total bondage, and Jesus frees her. In the name of Jesus, come out of her, he says, and she is free that very hour. Now, the text doesn't say she's converted, but I offer two things. First of all, uh, it's in the middle of two conversion stories. It's, it's sandwiched in between Lydia and the jailer, which we're about to read. So I think it's certainly possible that she is converted. Um, the goal of deliverance is not just to free someone from Satan, but to free them to Christ. The goal in delivering her in the name of Jesus is not that she goes to uh, you know, an enemy of God who's just not demonized, but that she go to become a daughter of God. So it's certainly possible. I would think likely that she is saved. Uh, she might get her freedom. They may have no use for her anymore. She could have been one of the first church members. But regardless, what we see is that God is at work supernaturally in very different people. A businesswoman who in that society, she would have been the highest of her class or her gender. She would have been respected, had some power, had some means. And then someone who's the very bottom, a slave who's inhabited by darkness. She would have been despised as, you know, in a lower position. And yet Jesus loves her. Jesus frees moral people who have it all together and need a Savior because they don't really have it all together. Jesus frees people who are in darkness, who are slaves of darkness. That may be you today. You may, may say, well, I'm not a moral person, uh, who a good person, person that people would respect. I'm someone with serious problems. Maybe you're trapped in something dark like she is. Maybe there's something occultic that you're dabbling in. Maybe alcoholism, drug abuse, sex addiction, porn addiction. Maybe you're having an affair. There's something that is committing adultery. That you are entrapped and enslaved and can't be free from. The darkness has its grip. Satan has his grips upon you in some way. Jesus frees people like you. He frees the moral. He frees those who are in darkness as well. Two very different situations. Look at the third scene. God miraculously saves a desperate seeker. So he works gently in a heart. He dramatically frees a slave. And he saves a desperate seeker at the end. Verse 25, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried out with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. 
And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. But when it was day, the magistrate sent the police saying, Let those men go. And the jailer reported these words to Paul, saying, The magistrates have sent, you, uh, have sent to let you go. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, They have beaten us publicly, uncondemned men who are Roman citizens, and have thrown us in prison. And now, and do they now throw us out secretly? No, let them come themselves and take us out. The police reported these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them, and they took them out and asked them to leave the city. So when they went out of the, so they went out of the prison and visited Lydia. And when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. Very different scenario here. Verse 25, I believe, is one of the most shocking verses in the book of Acts. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. They have been out responding to the Lord, responding to a vision, preaching the gospel, and they've been persecuted for their faith. They've been publicly humiliated, stripped in front of the, the crowd there that was abusing them. They have been beaten with multiple blows. They have not received, evidently, any kind of medical attention or any kind of cleansing of their wounds because the jailer does that after he's converted. Uh, they are not only beaten and bruised and sore, but they're immobilized by stocks. And they're left with not knowing what the magistrates will say tomorrow. People are getting killed for their faith in the book of Acts. Uh, they could be sentenced to death. They could be sentenced to further beatings. They could remain in jail. They don't know. But they're singing to God. They're singing hymns. And they are praying. It's an amazing, amazing scene, work of the Holy Spirit. Perhaps it's a greater miracle than, than we see anywhere else uh, in the book. Well, conversion is the greatest miracle. But next to that, this is amazing. And so the, what happens is an earthquake comes, and it shakes the foundation. The doors pop open. The chains, people who are chained to the walls, pop off, and the place is open. It's open at this point. And so he assumes, the jailer assumes, that all the prisoners are going to flee. And if all the prisoners flee, he receives their punishment. In other words, he'll be killed. Uh, he will be killed if the prisoners go free. And uh, so he gets his sword out. He's going to fall on his sword. He's suicidal. He's going to take his own life because he's despairing. This is not going to go well for me. I may be subject, I may die, but I may be subject to uh, uh, abuse and then die. I may be beaten and then die. Uh, so I'll kill myself and make it easy. So he's despairing of life itself. He thinks it's over for him. He's going to kill himself. And Paul says, hey, don't do that because we're all here. We haven't gone anywhere. We didn't run free. We're right here. And uh, so he gets the lights. He goes in, you know, some kind of a fire. He goes in. He looks around, and, and he cannot believe they're still there. He is trembling, verse 29. He is trembling with fear, and he falls down before them, he brings them out and he says, what, verse 30, what must I do to be saved? I mean, what an emotional event for this guy. He thinks he's going to be killed, so he'll kill himself. They're saying, no, we're okay. He can't believe this. We're right here. We're not going anywhere. He can't believe this. And so he asks, what must I do to be saved? Now, does he mean, how can my physical life be saved? Maybe, but I think he really means like we use the term. What must I be? What must I do to be saved from my sins? Because their answer isn't, "Well, just stay with us and we'll talk with the magistrates." Their answer is, "Believe in Jesus." That's what he says. They say, "Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved. You and your household. You can receive forgiveness of sins. You can receive new life. You and your whole family by believing in Jesus." 
And it's not over for you. As a matter of fact, this guy is seeking. He is desperate. He is asking for help. And they're saying, they're saying, you can have life in Christ. Now, why would he come to them and ask for salvation? I mean, certainly it could be because he sees something in them that is, that is, uh, that is not explainable, humanly speaking. He sees guys that are beaten. He sees guys that are suffering. He sees guys that because of their faith are being persecuted. And he sees them praising God in the midst of it. He hears them singing to the Lord. He hears their, their prayers. He hears the content of what they are saying. And he knows they have something, and so he asks, and he believes. He receives Jesus, he believes, he goes, he's baptized, he washes their wounds, verse 33. His whole family does. He brings them into his house. By the way, that is, happens in both of these situations. The Lord opens Lydia's heart, she opens her house. This guy receives salvation, he opens his house. And the entire household believes the Lord. And he says, he rejoiced with his entire household, verse 34. Everybody's excited. This is great. They celebrate and then they go back to prison. They don't just run off because the next day the police come to the prison and say, the magistrates say you are free. And Paul says, uh, well, they can come down here and tell me that. And it's not that he's just got an attitude and he's being sassy. And uh, what he's doing is he's protecting the church. He is a Roman citizen, and you could not beat a Roman citizen. So he's been treated as a non-Roman citizen and beaten, which they have done. Now, we don't know. Did he say that and they didn't hear it? Did he just not say it because he wanted to identify with the people and suffer for Christ? We don't know. But he's identifying it now. And so they are afraid when they hear this. They come and they ask, well, they apologize to him. Sorry we did this to you. And uh, so he wants a public acknowledgement that he should not have been persecuted, that he was not what he was accused of, that this was a miscarriage of justice, that it was unjust because that will protect the church in the future. Had he not done this, then everybody would have said, oh yeah, this group of people, Lydia, perhaps the servant girl, whoever else they had reached, this group of people is with the guy that was beaten and sentenced, so they're guilty too. So his actions is protecting the church. There was a time for the church to stand up to the state for the freedoms of the church to protect not only the individual but those who go after us and so that's what's happening here he's standing up for that reason they were treated unjustly so very different here's a jailer so he is saved and his family is saved so as we read this narrative what do we see we see three very different people a businesswoman probably upper middle class a slave girl, definitely lower class. A jailer, probably kind of a middle class kind of a guy. We see a moral person who needs Jesus. We see someone who's inhabited by a demon that needs deliverance. And we see a guy, we don't know much about his character or anything like that, but we see a guy who's at the place of desperation, ready to take his own life. And God intervenes and saves a guy Saves him from hell, saves him from killing himself. God intervenes. A desperately seeking man. We see God reaching him. Each, each of these type of people are all around us. They are us. We were them. The, 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 these are profiles of regular people that God is supernaturally reaching. God is supernaturally acting upon a woman entrapped in her own religious life a woman enslaved by darkness and a suicidal man who thought life was over that there was nothing to live for that his life was surely going to end each of them are around us here's my question as we go back to the introduction what are we expecting god to do in these type of people who are all around us. What are we expecting God to do? What did you expect God to do when you arrived this morning? Uh, nothing. I'm just glad that all the kids got dressed and we made it. I feel your pain. I understand that. <laughs> I understand that. But I think God has a little higher vision than clothed kids made it to the meeting. I mean, that's actually a very high vision if you've got little ones. But 
I think God wants to lift our expectations of what he desires to do. What do you expect God to do when you enter this meeting? What do you expect God to do when you walk out of here and enter your week? What are you expecting? What are you looking for? What are you asking God to do for those around you? Jesus comes to rescue and set people free. He comes for the moral to bring forgiveness because they're ultimately not moral. He comes for the ensla- those enslaved in darkness to give them freedom. He comes to bring new life. He comes to the desperate who are seeking answers, who sometimes get to the place of trembling and crying out, what must I do to be saved? What are we expecting him to do in the lives of those around us? The hard cases. Is God capable of opening the heart of the moral person that doesn't know Jesus? Your boss. Is God capable of opening his heart, her heart? Your spouse, if you're married to an unbeliever. Is God capable of opening her heart or his heart? Your moral neighbor, who doesn't appear to have any needs, he looks like he's got it better off together. He looks more together than you. But he's not, if he doesn't know Jesus. Can God open his heart? Could God use you? Is Jesus capable of delivering people you know from darkness? Real darkness. Your your teen, your own family, your teenager, your young adult, your coworker. This doesn't happen often to me when I'm preparing, but I had a very distinct impression. Usually I have general application. I had a very distinct impression, which was unusual, as I was preparing, that there was a young person or a young adult that would hear this that is dabbling in darkness, that is dabbling in uh in powers, that you have a fascination. It may be through gaming, or it may be through friends, but you have some kind of fascination with the dark side. And you're, you are investigating what we're reading here today. Mediums, fortune-telling, mystical things. And I believe God wants to warn you, wants to warn you that you will be captured if you go down that road and turn to him for freedom, and that there is freedom from those relationships or those compulsions that are drawing you. So I share that. If that applies to you, I, I hope you'll come talk to me after the service. I just had a very distinct impression of a young person or a young adult dabbling in darkness, and God is inter- interrupting this sermon, as it were, to call you out and extend mercy to you. It may be a secret, and nobody knows what you're doing, but he knows... And uh, he's speaking to you right now. Can God free the person enslaved with sexual sin, chemical dependence? Are we expecting him to lead us to people that are desperate, 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 like the jailer that we read about? I mean, as I read this, I say, is God any less God today than he was then? Does he not want to save and intervene? You, does, if you're not a Christian, does he want to, he wants to save you? Does he not want to save people that are like this? Is he any less powerful than to deliver people out of darkness like he does here? Than to save moral people? Than to intervene and rescue people? Is he any less loving? Does God care less about Frisco or wherever you live in this area than he does Philippi? Does God love Philippi more? Is God any less loving? Does God no longer want to display his power His power through quietly opening a heart, dramatically delivering somebody out of darkness, using circumstances to free someone and let them see their need for God, where they cry out in desperation. Does God not want to do that today? I believe He does, and I believe He wants to see us. He wants us to see Him as that kind of God. See, when we read a chapter like this, a narrative section out of Acts, it's, it's not to teach us primarily an evangelistic strategy. I mean, what would the evangelistic strategy be? Well, wander uh, about a mile down to the river and see if there's a group of ladies. That, that would be the key to reaching the city. Nobody would design that. Nobody would design that. You know, is, is it to just... Uh, Paul is just taking steps of faith and God's doing things. 
This is an evangelism strategy. Find a demonized person and wait for them to call out. And then that's not a strategy. Wait for an earthquake. So when you're get in jail, wait, this is an evangelism strategy. This is an expectation that God is reaching people and a longing and a praying and a boldness to speak and to pray and to step out and to watch what he will do. This reveals to us a compassionate, rescuing God who intervenes in people's lives, who takes a small situation and reaches a city, one lady, and leads to reaching a city. God who orchestrates and ordains all kinds of circumstances to save people. God who will, God who will cause an earthquake. God who will, in the midst of the earthquake, leverage the earthquake, leverage the fear in a guy's heart to show him his need for Jesus. God who will take suffering people and make them witnesses. Here's what's convincing about Paul and Silas's witness. It's not that it's going great. It's going the worst it's ever gone gone for him. Well, minus the stoning, perhaps. But it's gone as bad as it gets. In their suffering, they're worshiping God. They're, they're displaying the, they're in awe of how great God is. They're celebrating the wonder of God, and that's the witness. Never minimize the power of being enamored with God in the midst of your suffering and what that communicates. People have no grid for that. There's no earthly explanation for that. She loves Christ in the midst of her suffering. Overwhelming circumstances and the joy of the Lord leads him to sing. That's a testimony. And God uses that. God works in their heart and displays his power through them. How does he? He displays his power through beaten guys in stocks. If that's a circumstance, fine, he'll bring an earthquake. He can show his power however he wants. He brings us power. How? There's not even a synagogue. He goes to a woman down by the river and quietly opens her heart. She starts hosting people. She invites them in. Perhaps the church met in her house. At the end, they go and visit her at the end of the chapter, verse 40, and they say goodbye to the brothers. They encourage everybody and they depart. That's evidently the church. So perhaps the jailer's there, the slave girl, whoever else they've reached. Now that's a core team. I would like to plant a church with that team. We've got a businesswoman, a formerly demonized poor woman, and a jailer. Take the nations with that team. So that's who they bring in together. Maybe that's the core of the team. But he encourages them. And and a church is planted, and it's one of his favorite. See, we want to have a vision of who is God? How does he act? He rescued you. He rescued you, and he wants to rescue others. He's working all around us, and he wants us to open our eyes, elevate our faith, Trust Him. Be in awe of Him, who He is and what He's done. And watch what He will do. They are moving. They are open. They are presumably praying. They are speaking. But it is God who's doing all the saving. And it is God who's arranging all the circumstances. Do not know who you will meet at lunch today. Do not know what kind of conversation you will have with your coworker tomorrow. You do not know what God is doing in your boss's heart. You do not know what your kid who seems very far from the Lord, what's stirring in him right now or her. You do not know. But God is supernaturally bringing people to himself and then sanctifying us together. And he wants us to trust him to do that in our day in a fresh way as well. Let's pray. You've been listening to a message from Grace Church. For more information, visit our website or write us at podcast at gracechurchfrisco.org.